All right, last week we began looking at chapter 26, dealing with the doctrine of the church, and uh, we went through the first seven paragraphs uh, last week. And if you remember, uh, the confession talked about the universal church in the first four paragraphs, and then in paragraphs, paragraph five, started to transition talking about the local church. And we looked at uh, chap, uh, paragraphs five through seven. So let's go ahead and pick up this morning in paragraph eight. And that's what you have on your handout there, paragraphs 8 through 15. And if I can have somebody read paragraph 8 for us. A local church gathered and fully organized according to the mind of God, uh, mind of Christ, consists of officers and members. The officers appointed by Christ are overseers or elders and deacons. They are to be chosen and set apart by the church, called and gathered in this way, for the distinctive purpose of administering ordinances and for carrying out any other power or duty Christ entrusts them with or calls them to. This pattern is to be continued to the end of the age. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. So the point of this paragraph that, that we're looking at here is that Christ has appointed only two continuing offices in the local church, that of elders and deacons. And there are a couple things that we want to say about this. Uh, first, we see that only these two offices are mentioned in the classic New Testament passages on the continuing offices of the local church, which I have on PowerPoint and you can't see. So you'll just have to listen because we don't have time to flip through all these uh, together. But Philippians 1.1, uh, Paul was inspired to say this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Okay, so he addresses the church at Philippi, all the people there with the overseers and deacons. Okay, and then in 1 Timothy 3, popular passage there, uh, verses 1 and 2, and then also verse 8. I'll go ahead and read those, where it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and so on. And then later on, in verse 8, he says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, and so on. So again, as, as Paul is instructing Timothy about ordering the church, he again gives them that instruction that you have the office of overseer and then you also have the deacons uh, within that. So the implications from these passages is that there were no other continuing offices but these two. Uh, there were other offices um, that we see in scripture, but none of those continued on uh, after the inception of the church. Another thing that we want to say about this is the office of elder or presbyter, overseer, or bishop, and pastor, or shepherd, those words are used synonymously, are, are one and the same. And that's important to see as, as well. It's, it's common today for people to draw a distinction between pastors and elders, and there is no distinction in Scripture. It's just using a different title for the same office, for the same function that this person would perform within within the church. Um, but there's a, a good example of this. Go ahead and turn with me to Acts 20, where Paul addresses uh, these men. If you remember the Ephesian elders, I want you to see 
what he says to them. Okay, and I'm going to read verse 17, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 28. Okay, Acts 20, starting in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders. Okay, so there's, there's one title that is given for this group of men. The elders of the church to come to him. And then drop down to verse 28, same group of men that he's addressing here. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And then the next phrase he says, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, that, that term, elders, okay, presbyteros, is a function of the elder, okay, to, to oversee, to govern. And then you also have that, that same type of phrase used there in verse 28, where he says, overseers, episkopos is the, the Greek word there. There's a little different nuance there, to govern, guide, direct. And then the next phrase, to care for, poimeno, means to shepherd. So you have one group of men that are being addressed and three different titles that are used in addressing these men, which show the different roles that they will handle within this one office that they have been entrusted to. Peter also alludes to this in 1 Peter 5, 2, where he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So again, that that phrase elders, presbyteros, those who govern or oversee, and then shepherd, right? So it's just a different function of the same office. So it's important to see here that there are not three offices in the church. There's not pastor, elder, and deacon. There's pastors slash elders slash shepherds and deacons. Okay? Those are the two offices with distinctions being shown about what the function of that office is. In the office of elder, you have one office with multiple functions in that office. And, and this biblical teaching should not be undermined by terminology that we really like to stay away from, such as senior pastor. Um, that There's no biblical warrant for that. We, we wouldn't see that in Scripture. There, there's not one pastor who has more authority than the other pastors within the church. There's different giftings amongst those pastors. But there isn't an authority that one has that is greater than the other. Uh, The norm in each local church is a plurality of elders who are equal. We would call this parity, which means equality amongst the, the pastors. There's no distinction as far as authority goes, okay? Again, there's distinction as far as the roles are concerned and how those are delegated. There may be differences in giftedness, but there's no distinction in authority. And that's the clear implication of, of the Bible, and therefore the confession picks up on that and says, says the same. Yes? Um, I just have a question. Yeah. Being a part of different, of different churches in the past, they 
have, and this church doesn't do that, but they have like the head pastor and then the uh, associate pastor. Right. Yep. Where like it seems like a lot in a lot of churches they have the head pastor who almost has more of an authority kind right. of figure. Yep. So that's not a good I don't see it. Okay. I don't see that. Yeah. Okay. Um Again, there's, there's that, that's why we would say, like, Pastor Jack is the pastor teacher, which essentially means he's the one who's been called to the pulpit ministry, right? Um, so not, not every pastor is necessarily called to a pulpit ministry, right? But that doesn't make, when it comes to ruling and governing, there's no distinction in the authority that each man has. There's distinction in the giftedness and what that looks like and how that plays itself out. Some may be more administratively uh, gifted than others, but when it comes to the authority and the rule of the church, everybody is equal. No, nobody has greater weight than somebody else. Do you know how that has come about in the churches? That yeah, I, 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 think it's, I think it's a misunderstanding of the government of the church. Um, and this is where we would disagree with our Presbyterian brothers and... and uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay, Preston. I was just going to say, what about the concept, uh, even though there's no more weight given? Yes. So like kind of the, the idea of like the leader among leaders, like you see when in, in uh, Acts 15 where James stands up and gives a declaration. Sure. Um, he was a pastor, he wasn't even an apostle. Yeah. Um, just the, the concept of kind of maybe because of their godliness and oversight and, and just wisdom that God seems to have given where uh, others are kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. Sure. Yeah, no, I totally, I, I would totally agree with that. I mean, you see instances where uh, men have greater degrees of wisdom than other men. I think the main issue, though, is when it comes to the authority within the local church, is there any greater authority that one man has over the other? And I think the clear teaching of Scripture would be no, that there, there isn't. It's not that there are going to be some who are um, more outspoken than others, which we see in Scripture. Just giftedness, I think personality has something to do that with, with that as well. Uh, but when it comes to the authority within the local church, um, there isn't a distinction on that. So, yes, Peter. Correct. Yep. Some men, like that like passage present in Yep. Uh, you know, they take uh, some action mm-hmm. here or there. Right. Sometimes with an apostle going out, someone that is not where ranked where they are makes a statement. They're like, well, yeah, they should do this. So that doesn't help Trump carry morality. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, all right. Good stuff. All right, let's move on here to the next uh, next passage. I have a bunch of passages that uh, could refer to on paragraph eight, but you can't see them, and we don't have time to turn to them. But um, anyway, let's move on to paragraph paragraph nine here. Can somebody read that for us? Christ is- 
elected by the Holy Spirit to the office of overseer or elder in a church. He must be chosen by the collective vote of the church itself. He must then be solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer. By the elders of the church must lay hands on him if there are any already in place. A deacon must be chosen by the same kind of vote and set apart by prayer and laying on of hands as well. Okay, good. All right, so... The essence of this paragraph deals with how elders and deacons are to be selected in a local church. Now, the spiritual prerequisite for appointment to these offices in the church is that they're qualified and gifted by the Holy Spirit, as the first sentence mentions here. In other words, the church has no right to simply appoint any man to office for which that man is not gifted. Okay, So you can't just be like, hey, uh, this guy, you know, he's, uh, he has good leadership skills, He's very charismatic, uh, outgoing personality, so let's, let's choose him while not taking into account the qualifications that we see in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus chapter 1. The church has been given guidelines to follow in this process, and 1 Timothy 3 uh, makes that very clear where we see the necessary qualifications for elders and deacons. So, just to kind of give you a practical look at this, um, here's, here's how we deal with these issues uh, locally here at, at FBC. Uh, one of the main objectives for the elders is to keep our eyes open for those in our congregation whom the Lord is calling as a pastor or an, an elder. Uh, we believe that elders are, are recognized, not, not made, right? So we don't we don't see somebody, hey, that guy's got good leadership skills. Let's, uh, let's make him an elder. We're observing what God is already doing because we believe that the Holy Spirit is the one who gifts that person, who puts it within that person's heart. As 1 Timothy 3 says, if any man desires to be an overseer, that's a noble thing, right? So it's the Holy Spirit who does this work. And as pastors, we're simply on the lookout to see what God is doing in that man's life. And the same is true uh, for deacons. We simply respond to what God's doing in a man's life. At some level, an elder will already be functioning in some capacity as an elder without yet having the authority of that office. And what I mean by that is uh, there's going to be some uh, ability to teach there, as we see in 1 Timothy 3, that'll come up in various contexts, in flock groups, and Sunday schools, just input that is given, things of that nature. And there will already, you'll, you'll see kind of a shepherding already that's taking place where a man's heart is for the people of God and to be with them and to see them prosper in the Lord. Uh, again, those are things that we're looking at. We're not doing, we're not forcing, we're not saying this man has good qualities, let's force him into that role. We're just looking and we're saying, the Lord's doing something here, right? The Lord's working at some level in these, in these things. And once all the elders feel confident that this man is functioning in this capacity, uh, we'll, we'll speak to that man and we'll ask him uh, if he feels the Lord is, is leading him in this way. Does he have a desire uh, for these things? And the man may say, no, <laughs> I don't. I don't have a desire to be an overseer. And at that point, we would simply back off because we look at 1 Timothy 3 and we say that we believe that there's the inward call of the Holy Spirit putting into the heart of that man the desire to lead the people of God. 
And then there's the outward call of us noticing that and saying, this man is functioning in this, in this capacity. So there's the desire within, God calling that man, and then the elders and the rest of the church recognizing how that man is already functioning, how that man is living. Now, there's not necessarily a set time on this. In other words, not like, hey, let's observe here for the next two or three months. It'll just be discussions that we're having amongst ourselves and say, you know what, it really seems as if the Lord is working on this person. Let's keep an eye on that and, you know, let's, let's talk again in the future. But at some point, we'll come back together and, and seek to talk to that man and see where their heart is if, if they feel like the Lord is calling them into this office. What we'll do at that point, if the man says, yeah, I really have a burden to, to shepherd the people of God, um, I, a desire to teach and, and to lead uh, the people of God, uh, what we'll do at that point is we'll bring that man into some type of training, some type of elder training, uh, where we have the opportunity to expose them a little bit more to pastoral ministry, to kind of get a, a, a better view of what that looks like, the kinds of in, ins and outs um, of that ministry. And that's also another time for us to continue to look at and affirm what the Lord is doing in that man's life. And then after that, if we're confident that the Lord's clearly working in this man's life, the desire is there within him, um, we'll bring that man's name before the congregation. And we'll present it to the congregation. We typically give a, a, a month notice to the congregation to say, hey, we're looking at bringing this person into this uh, office. We believe that God is calling this person. The desire is there, whether that be elder or deacon. And we'll present that to the congregation because, again, we recognize that the congregation may know something that we don't, <laughs> right? We, we may see this person in this context and we may observe their life on some level, but there may be something going on behind the scenes that we're completely unaware of, that, uh, that other people are saying, hey, here's, here's a reason for great pause for moving forward uh, with, this, with this man. So we recognize that the wisdom doesn't begin and end with us, that we, there's a whole congregation that's observing uh, this, man's, this man's life. And if at that point we feel confident that this man uh, has... Uh, this giftedness that the Lord is calling him to this, after that month time, we'll officially install that man into that, into that office. Now, what we'll do is, that you've read in Scripture the laying on of hands, and that's simply to affirm from the current leadership to the forthcoming leadership, to affirm that this man is being set apart into this office, Right? And this man is now being brought into this office and the weight and authority that comes with that office as well. Now, is there a possibility for error here? Absolutely. Which is why we have guidelines set out for us in the Word. It's, it's one of the reasons why you see Paul saying to Timothy, don't lay your hands on anyone too early. Right? In other words, make sure you know to the best of your ability that the man who is being called into this position is qualified to be there. That's not a quick process, and it shouldn't be a quick process because this is a massive move for the people of God when you're putting a man 
into that type of authority. Uh, so it, it's something that we don't want to be quick on. We don't want to unnecessarily bog down that process, but we want to use wisdom and pray and fast and ask the Lord, help us to make sure we're seeing this correctly and for that man as well to pray and make sure that this is what the Lord is, is calling him to. Okay, so just a little idea of kind of what that looks like on a very practical level um, for elders and deacons uh, stepping into that, into that office, okay? Is that helpful? Okay, hopefully it wasn't overboard. But I just wanted to give you an, an idea of what that looked like. Okay, let's move on here to paragraph 10. Somebody can read that for us. The work of pastors is to give constant attention to the service of Christ in his churches and the ministry of the word and prayer. They are watch over the souls of the church members as those who must give an account to Christ. The churches of whom they minister must not only give them all due respect, but also must share with them from all their good things according to their ability. They must do this so that pastors may have a comfortable living without having to be entangled in secular matters and so they can show hospitality to others. This is required by the law of nature and by the explicit command of our Lord Jesus, who is ordained that those who preach the gospel should also earn their living by the gospel. Okay, thank you, Forrest. So the, the first sentence of this paragraph, we're reminded that the primary role of pastors is the ministry of the word, prayer, and the watching over of the souls that, that have been entrusted to them, souls for whom they will one day give an account to Christ. That's a, that's a massively weighty thing, right? Not only giving account for yourself, but for those whom you have been entrusted to oversee. The rest of this paragraph deals with pastors making a living by this gospel work and they're to be supported by the church. Um, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Timothy 5. <coughs> Again, apologize that the PowerPoint's not functioning here, but 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, as the confession cites here. If I can have somebody read that for us. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Okay. So contextually, we can see that the word honor that is used here means financial support. Uh, we see that from verse 18, but... We also see it if we look back earlier in the chapter. If you look back at verses 3 through 8 here where it talks about widows. I'm going to read that. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 8. It says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So I think that context and how that word honor is being used there 
Um, you even see the word godliness being used there uh, to show godliness, and that's in, in respect to caring for uh, those that are uh, under your care. So this honoring of the widows means providing for them, which is the same context that's used in describing the work of, of pastors. Uh, scripture says here that the pastors who rule well, and especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, are worthy of double honor. That, that's another great text to think through, that not all pastors are going to, again, be called to a pulpit ministry where you're preaching every week, or maybe even a teaching ministry where you're teaching every week. Okay? There may be that involved in the office, but it may not be as much as others. So again, there's, there's a distinction there in giftedness and what that looks like on a week-in and week-out basis. Um, but Paul reminds Timothy here that they're worthy of double honored, which is explained adequately, I believe, by the confession when it states that the pastor should have a comfortable income without being entangled in secular affairs and may also be able to exercise hospitality toward others. Now, obviously it would be Great to be in a financial position as a congregation to have all of our pastors on staff full-time. Um, as, as a smaller church that continues to grow, that's not always the case. So how do you deal with that when you're in a position like we are? We have two full-time, one part-time uh, with the pastors. Sam Waldron had a really helpful uh, statement on this, and I'm going to read from his modern exposition of the 1689, just a little paragraph that he had there where he talks about this, uh, this context, and he says this, Paul's thought may be illustrated by means of two concentric circles. The outer circle encompasses all elders who rule well. The inner circle encompasses those elders who are gifted to work hard at preaching and teaching. Financial support must be focused in the inner circle and radiate outwards as the necessity and ability of the church makes this appropriate. I think that's a really helpful, helpful look at that. Like, how do you deal with that uh, just in a context like ours where a man is clearly called to the office, but you don't have the financial means to put that man on staff and pay him full time, right? We don't want to deprive the church of that man's giftedness of being able to serve in that capacity. At the same time, you're in a position where you're not quite where you want to be financially in order to bring somebody on, on full time. So I think, I think Waldron has uh, just helpful wisdom in thinking through what that, what that would look like. And again, I think that gets into the giftedness of the men who are called uh, to this office. Another passage that the Confession cites here that is helpful is Galatians 6, verses 6 and 7. You can turn there if you would like. Galatians 6, verses 6 and 7. Somebody want to read that for us? Okay, good. Thanks, Des. So the way that this passage speaks about providing for those who teach is by using the word share. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Um, almost all would agree that the good things that are being referred to here are material possessions or financial support. Now, certainly we have all seen instances of abuse in this regard of 
um, pastors really lording it over their flock and abusing them in the area of financial giving to really fatten their own pockets for their own selfish, selfish gains. Uh, but at the same time, we don't want to let the pendulum swing that far and just be like, it doesn't matter. We don't really have to give it all, right? You, you got to work um, in some other capacity as well, just like, just like the rest of us. And I want you to think about how the consequences for a congregation not fulfilling these commands are really self-inflicting uh, to the congregation. If the pastors are un unable to be provided for and have to labor under another type of work, there's going to be some type of uh, a divided life that is going on there. And the opportunity to study and prepare in order to feed the congregation the word of God is going to be hindered at some level. Uh, if a man has to divide himself and, and go that route. Um, it's a blessing to be able to provide those who preach and teach because it has great effect upon your own soul and the growth of it, right? So it, it's, again, it's self-inflicting to see that in a, a different capacity. Um, and, and, you know, that's one of the reasons that, that we bring the budget before the congregation so that we can all look at it together. We can think through and pray through that collectively. We want every line item to be out there laid out for you guys. And that's why we include the pastor's salaries within that um, so that you can say, here's how much you know, we're projected to make for the, for the coming year. Let's all look at this. If there's any questions about that, <laughs> like, well, I think that's too much. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Let's see. Maybe that is too much. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Or that doesn't seem like enough. And to that, we would say, amen. You know, that's true. That's not enough. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm teasing. I'm going to edit that out of the, uh, out of the so, but, but truthfully, that's, uh, that's the reason that we like to be as open as we possibly can. We just want to say, hey, listen, you know, you guys have partnered with us to support us. We want to do well in study and preaching and teaching so that you're fed well. Um, and we want to do that as much as we can without being hindered by other avenues where we would have to provide for ourselves because then our time will be more divided than, than we want it to be and we won't be able to give the necessary preparation as we, as we desire. Okay, so I think, I think the confession uh, really does a good job of balancing that in a way that's that's helpful for both pastors and the congregation. George. Just have a question. Number 22 says this is required by the law of nature. Yeah, and it was referring to that 1 Timothy 5 passage where it talked about the ox not being muzzled while it treads out the grain. So, yeah, so it's like, you know, look at the ox. The ox isn't being deprived of being fed even as it works. And so he uses that and puts that onto the pastors and said, you know. <coughs> now, you do see instances, for example, where, where Paul was, you know, confessing to the church, hey, I, I'm working with my own hands here. I'm, I'm a tent maker on, on top of this. And a lot of the times he would do things of that nature to show the church just to make it very clear then that I'm not here to abuse you. I'm not here to lord it over you. Uh, that was voluntary by Paul to to do such things, because he says in 1 Corinthians 9, it's our, it's my, it's our right to, to take that, but I'm going to deny that in this instance in order that you may see that we're not in it for selfish gain or things of, things of that nature. Okay? All right. Let's move on to paragraph 11 and try to work through five paragraphs in 15 minutes. Okay? 
Somebody want to read that for us? Paragraph 11? Not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but. Okay, good. So the confession pretty sufficiently, I think, explains all that there is to say about this paragraph, and that is simply this. One's not required to be a pastor in order to preach the word to the people of God. However, the man who feels as if he is called to preach is to submit himself <coughs> to the church, right? So in other words, no man just takes that upon himself and says, I'm here to preach, <laughs> and without anybody giving any, any input on that. Um, so that man must be recognized by one who is called to exercise this gift and then to fulfill uh, that calling. And we've had instances of that here at Faith where we've had men step in the pulpit who weren't pastors um, either at our church or even in another, but had an established reputation for being able to handle the word of God accurately and to, and to proclaim, it, proclaim it well. Um, so again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that on that paragraph. Let's go to paragraph 12. Okay, somebody want to read that? Okay, so this paragraph and the next paragraph as well, actually, focuses mainly on discipline within a local church. Now, when we hear the word discipline, many of us have connotations with it that produce a negative concept in our minds. However, Scripture paints discipline as a positive, loving concept uh, when it follows the biblical guidelines, which is why the Confession states that believers need to join themselves to a local church as soon as they possibly can. We need to be in and under the government of the local church in order to help us grow into the image of Christ, right? We're not called to be Lone Ranger Christians who are just kind of out there floating around. I'm doing the work of the Lord on my own. I don't need the body of Christ. It's a very dangerous and unbiblical uh, mindset. Listen, we need the body of Christ in order to help us to live a holy life. That's the way that God has ordained it. That doesn't mean that we're not depending upon God. As a matter of fact, it shows us that we are depending on God and his wisdom that he's instituted the church and sought to put us under and in union with the local congregation. Now, that's according to the mind of, of Christ. We need accountability around us in order to keep us from straying off the narrow path. And if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you've seen that in your own life. How when you neglect the fellowship of the people of God, you start becoming wise in your own eyes. And it leads to bad things all the time. Uh, just talk to people who are out of fellowship for a while. It never goes better. <laughs> it's not, oh man, I'm really prospering in the Lord more than I was when I wasn't under uh, that that local fellowship. Now, that, that presupposes that they're in a good local fellowship because you may actually prosper better outside than being some of the churches that are uh, erected today. But a passage that really helpful um, when, as we think about this, the necessity of 
being in the local church. First Timothy, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians 5, 14, which the confession cites here. First Thessalonians 5, 14. This, this isn't a passage simply for pastors. I think pastors really need to take heed to it more. But this is given to the believers as a whole in Thessalonica. And 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. If you haven't memorized that verse yet, that's a great verse to memorize because it helps you to see your responsibility within the local church, right? Admonish the idle, the the unruly, the the undisciplined, and we do so in a loving manner, right? But, But we don't become passive. We don't become passive in that. We see a brother or sister who is just dove into sin and is unchecked in that, it's unloving to stay silent, right? It's loving to step in and to gently admonish that person, right? So you have that aspect, admonish the idol. The next one, encourage the faint-hearted, right? Those who are discouraged. You have a word of encouragement. Do you pray that way on either a Saturday night or a Sunday morning? Lord, help me to encourage a brother or sister today in the flock, Give me a word to speak to that person from your word that would be helpful for them, that would build them up. Helping the weak. You see, Paul talks a lot about this, is those who are weak in the faith, those who need to be built up. We come alongside them. And how are, how are we to respond to all of these? Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all, right? Never becoming prideful, puffed up, that I've arrived at some level and this person's way down here and I gotta traverse back down the hill and help them and no. We recognize, we think about the kindness and the love of Christ and the patience of Christ toward us and we display that to each other. Tell you, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, when that's functioning properly, you have a beautiful thing within the local church. You have a church that's really caring for and loving one another. So that's a passage that we really wanna embrace and seek to apply to our lives but you get outside the context of the local church and you don't see this happening (coughs) right when you're faint-hearted you have nobody to encourage you when you're weak in the faith nobody to come alongside and help you when you're in sin which you are if you're habitually staying outside the fellowship of the people of God nobody there to admonish you and listen we become wise in our own eyes and we think we're thinking better than God is thinking and what God is is saying. Yes. Just like, just like discipline sounds harsh. Yep. And admonish sounds hard and yep. harsh. Mm-hmm. Done lovingly, that, that is an expression of love. That's exactly right. It is an expression of love. Yes. You care enough for someone to admonish them. Yes. Always making sure you have the lock on your own eye first, remembering how painful it was. Yep. Take that lock out. Yeah. To go back and take the food out. Yes. That's right. Yeah, it's that Galatians 6 mentality right there that you're, you're doing so, you're helping that person who's ensnared, ensnared and you're doing so with gentleness, right? So that should be our, our disposition. Uh, we, we recognize from this passage here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 
that transformation does not take place overnight, does it? It's little by little, little by little. But it happens if we're, if we're diligent to stay in that. So you just get this picture here of a community that loves each other deeply, loves each other so much that they're willing to speak the truth and love to one another in order to aid in their sanctification. And if necessary, in instances you see where people are removed from the fellowship, if that person remains in unrepentant sin and they're not heeding to the counsel of God. And that purpose is always for restoration, right? It's always that they may come to their senses, that they might, be, they might repent and be restored to fellowship. Okay, so it's, it's a very helpful, uh, helpful thing. All right, let's go on to paragraph 13. I don't know if we're going to be able to get through all this, but somebody want to read? Paragraph 13 for us. The church members who have been offended and have performed their duty concerning the person by which they are offended should not disrupt any church action or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or administration of any ordinances because of the offense at any of their fellow members. Instead, they should look to Christ and further action of the church. Very good. Thank you. So as I mentioned when we were looking at, at paragraph 12, both these paragraphs kind of deal with this aspect of, of discipline within the church. And this one envisions someone who has sinned against you, whom you've confronted. Others have now been brought into this situation, and you're waiting a response from the church. How, how do we, what's our disposition as we, as we wait? Do we grow impatient and create a revolution because we're weary of waiting? No. Uh, we, we entrust, as the confession says here, we entrust the situation to the Lord, trusting that we have followed his prescribed means for dealing with the current situation. We are in the midst of this situation to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And, and although things may not be progressing as quickly as you would like, you trust that the Lord is in control of this and you continue to wait submissively for the church to act. Uh, and, and I love what the confession says here. You must not react to this situation sinfully by removing yourself from the fellowship of the saints or by barring yourself from the ordinances, in particular the Lord's Supper, right? You don't just, well, this is not being dealt with, so I'm going to leave the fellowship, right? That's not the disposition that we should have. And I think Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, and also Colossians 3, 12 through 15, really get at the heart of how are we how we are to wait in that situation. I'm just going to read Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 with you. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, and then notice the disposition here, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That, that's the type of heart that must be displayed in a situation like this. And some thoughts that are helpful as, you, as you're working through a situation like this is you ask yourself, is Christ present in this situation? This, this situation that I'm dealing with with a brother and sister that uh, has been brought now before at least some within the, in the church, is Christ present at this moment? And we would say, yes, he is present here. So we entrust ourselves to him. Am I in a true church with qualified pastors? That's a, an important question as well because you may not be. And so that may be one of the reasons for the delay in the process. They may be winking at sin or overlooking it. And if you can answer yes to those, even if the church is temporarily delayed, 
then we have the exhortation to pray for those who are also examining this situation. Pray for the person who has sinned against you and pray for your own heart. That's, that's the godly response that we ought to have uh, rather than just uprooting and, and taking off. Okay? Let's be daring and see if we can get through paragraphs 14 and 15 here. I will go ahead and read those. Every church and all its members are obligated to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all churches of Christ in every place. They must also, at every opportunity within the limits of their stations and callings, exercise their gifts and graces to benefit every church. Also, when churches are raised up by the providence of God, insofar as they enjoy opportunity and favorable circumstances for it, they should have fellowship among themselves for their peace, growth in love, and mutual edification. Paragraph 15. Cases of difficulties or differences, doctrinal or administrative, may arise, touching on the peace, union, and edification of all churches in general or an individual church. Other cases may occur when a member or members of a church are injured in or by disciplinary action that is not in keeping with truth and order. In such cases, it is according to the mind of Christ for many churches having fellowship together to meet through their messengers to consider and give their advice concerning the issue and dispute and to report their advice to all the churches concerned. Nevertheless, these assembled messengers are not entrusted with any church authority, strictly speaking. Neither do they have any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any discipline either over any churches or individuals or to impose their decision on the churches or officers. Now that's a mouthful. <coughs> so, the central duty which the confession seeks to expound in its treatment of the relations of the local church is the duty of holding communion with other churches. In other words, each local church, although it is autonomous, should to the best of their ability have connections with other churches in their area, if at all possible. And the essential basis for this is to demonstrate the love and oneness that we have with each other in Christ. As Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And one of the most beneficial ways that we can demonstrate this is by consistently praying for the universal church, and especially those churches that are in close proximity to us. Uh, we see also here in paragraph 14 that there seems to be scriptural illustrations of regional communions of local churches. Um, again, we don't have time to go through this, but Galatians 1, 2 and Colossians 4, 16 um, seem to illustrate that. Paul writing to the Galatians, if you remember, he's writing to the churches of Galatia, right? So it's not just one church in, in Galatia, there are churches in Galatia. So this letter is going out to all of them. There was an understanding that there was communion amongst those churches. And then in Colossians 4 as well, Paul instructs the Colossians there. He says, and when this letter that he wrote to the believers at Colossae, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So the assumption there is that there's communion amongst these churches. That They're not just these little individual islands functioning by themselves. And that's an easy trap to fall into, right? Because you just get caught up in your own local setting, which is good. We want to be involved in our local setting. But as much as possible, we want to lift our eyes up and recognize 
the work of Christ is going on around us as well. And as we have opportunity to meet with those other churches for, as the confession says here, for our peace and growth in love and mutual <clears throat> edification. And then in paragraph 15, we're instructed that we, what we ought to do when difficulties or differences arise in either single churches or amongst multiple churches. The biblical basis that the confession gives here for such assemblies <coughs> is the doctrine of seeking counsel from multiple sources and not being wise in our own eyes. Uh, because of our depravity, we're almost always going to think that we're in the right and others are in the wrong, especially when it comes to conflict. That's why it's wise to bring other godly counsel in from the outside that can give a more objective viewpoint on certain situations. And a couple of the passages, passages that the confession cites here I think are really helpful. Proverbs 12, 15 says this, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Right? There's a spirit of humility there. There's a recognition that I don't have all the wisdom on whatever the situation is, either in my own life or corporately within our local uh, setting. Proverbs 13.10 says something very similar. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Again, there's that spirit of humility. And then the confession closes this paragraph by reminding us that although advice can be given, each local church remains autonomous and therefore has no jurisdiction over any other local church. It cannot demand that that advice be taken, nor can it impose its conclusions on the churches or officers involved. So, as we, as we think again about what this chapter says about the church, both universal and local, I hope you can feel the weight of the blessing and the protection that God seeks to have for us as the people of God, as he brings us in to his body. <coughs> God has ordained this to be a microcosm of that assembly that we'll all gather into on that great day of our Lord's return. Okay? All right, let me go ahead and pray for us. If you do have any further questions, you could submit those to the green box where we'll be doing a Q&A uh, the last Sunday in August. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you again for this time <clears throat> to uh, look through the confession and see how the things that were written in this confession are birthed out of a right understanding of your word, we would believe. And so thank you that everything is driving us back to the word to think through these things. Uh, we ask that you would help our minds to continue to be renewed. And especially as we think about our local fellowship here, Lord, we thank you for the blessing that you've given us in each other to come alongside one another, to promote each other's edification and building up into the image of Christ. Help us to that end, to look out for others, to think through how we can be a blessing to one another, that in all things you would be glorified. Bless us now as we go into our service. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.